how did you get into the world of cinematography? Did you go to film school? And where did you go to film school? That would be our first question. Okay, first question. Good question. I had a very sort of unique entree into the film industry. I was actually studying architecture at Auckland University and got interested in film I was and photography. I was into photography. I was still photographer and a lot of dark room and stuff. But there was no real film industry in New Zealand at that point. And it was just starting to start up. And a couple of friends of mine became involved and I got interested. And I made a film as my final year project for, uni for university, a 16 mil film with sound, fully finished. Not very good, of course. But but I was I had the book. I had this book by a guy called Lenny Lipton, How to Make an Independent Film. And it told you everything, <laughs> literally everything. And I went out with that book in one hand and the camera in the other, I made a little film. And then when I came, I came out of school, I went straight looking for film work. And it was just kicking off in New Zealand. And as I like to say, I was unemployed, interested, and therefore available. And they took me on board to run away and join the circus. And so I did. And yeah, no formal training. That's awesome. And would this be 71, 72, early 70s? When could we place Middle late 70s. I want to okay. say 70, 77, probably. Uh, and what would you say was in the Australian film industry at the time that was interesting for you? Were you going to movies? Were you going to festivals out in Australia or New Zealand? I'm sorry. I said about the competitive nature between New Zealanders and Australians. The Australian film industry, as you say, in the early 70s kicked off with Gillian Armstrong, Peter Weir, but that, all that crowd making really interesting films. And we started seeing them in New Zealand, going, going to the movies, as we did. And I was definitely a big movie goer. I think it woke a lot of people up in New Zealand. They went, oh, the Australians are doing this. Why aren't we? And uh, people like Roger Donaldson, Jeff Stevens, very early ventures into feature filmmaking in that era. So there, yeah, that was what was driving it. And one of the early New Zealand features was a thing called Middle-Aged Spread, which was based on what had been a successful play in New Zealand by a local playwright. And I got work on that as a runner, runner, van driver, and general assistant to everyone. So I learned a little bit about lighting on that by helping Warwick out while he was the gaffer. And that and was able to parlay that into working on commercials as a gaffer. And the DPs were effectively teaching me how to do it on the job. So it was extraordinarily education. A lot of the DPs shooting in New Zealand came from Australia at that time. So they were more, more experienced. And sorry, I've got some cross-talk. Just backing up, sorry. So no yeah, we're used to the background noise. We had Jani Tamayn joining us from London, a costume designer for Alfonso Coron, and we managed to edit that one as well. So we had some background last December. Okay. New Zealand and Peter Weir. And so Peter Weir was from us from New Zealand. Peter was from Australia. So I'm saying is that the Australians started making movies and having success, Picnic at Hanging Rock, The Last Wave, what was Jillian, My Brilliant Career, Julian Armstrong's film. And it did, it sparked the sort of competitiveness in the New Zealand-Australia relationship. And the first big film in New Zealand was Roger Donaldson's Sleeping Dogs, based on a novel by Carstead, New Zealand novelist, futuristic political drama. And a lot of, I knew a lot of the people who worked on that and that was my way in. The next project was the one I said, was the Middle-Aged Spread, which I got to work on. And would that be middle-aged spread, would it be 76? We're talking of 77 or... Something like 78 by then, because I'd spent a bit of time in Australia driving a taxi after I finished school. 
discovering oh, wow. that getting into the film industry wasn't quite as easy as I thought. I went to Australia because I thought there'd be more going on there, but right. they already had enough bright-eyed young people trying to get into the business already. So I was so uh, on an episode of the Team Deacons podcast, John Seal had mentioned that he started with the ABC Australian Broadcasting Corporation assistant camera. Did you ever go onto the mainland to get jobs in broadcast or? No, but a lot of the people who I followed into the new, the people who were already filmmakers in New Zealand had come from TV, either from the UK or from New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation, as it was called then, the local version of the ABC, or the National Film Unit, which was the equivalent of the Film Board of Canada, which was a great training ground for a lot of people. Sam Neill, for example, was an editor at National Film Unit before he became an actor and that was and in fact he was the lead he must have done some acting repertory and stuff but Roger Donaldson cast him as the lead in his Sleeping Dogs movie and it sort of went from there. We'll come to the piano a little later I know you guys worked together in the 90s so going back to mid-70s take us forward then from from that point middle of the decade what was next what was the did you at that point did you want to try the LA market or come to Europe or what we, how was that I'm just switching to I just realized I'm confusing myself looking at two different screens oh yeah that should be easier now you you just leave, I'm gonna leave the other one are you record yeah. you record everything right we're still recording so we should be good yeah we're you're recording all the, what I'm saying is if I've switched screens which I have now yeah. different camera angle better lighting and sorry sorry Dara you were asking me a question and I've completely forgotten oh, what it was. so at that point mid 70s you were mentioning Sam Neill was doing some editing before going into acting it didn't occur to me to go overseas I did at one stage start putting a application together for the London International Film School but I was able to start shooting on my own without a formal education and as I say I got a great informal education on the job from all these terrific cameramen who came in from all over the world. I worked, I was gaffer for Chris Menges on a film and I like learned so much about essentially about windows just by talking to him and watching him what he did and placing lights for him as his gaffer. Yeah so it was a really unique and wonderful education and in the mid-80s a couple of the commercial directors I'd been working with as a gaffer gave me the chance to light some spots and I discovered, you know, discovered I could do it and they discovered I could do it. And at first they would have me working with an operator because they wasn't, they weren't sure I could run a camera. They knew I could light, but that, that went away very quickly, luckily. And because uh, I actually love, if I can, I still to this day prefer to operate and, and light at the same time, if I can, can't always, but when I, yeah, when I have the opportunity, I do that, particularly on independent films more than the big studio films. But so, yeah, so that's the education part of it. And if we if we go forward now to, this is not going in the podcast, but I'm actually going to go back to your IMDb page because I have a lot to sure. ask. I originally had Variety doing this, and then my colleague in podcasting. How do you how do you end up how do you end up connecting with Jane Campion? Was that later or? Because you have several collaborations. Work out. Now, there's a, there is a story there that one of one of the people I came up through the New Zealand film industry with was uh, a young woman, Alison McLean, filmmaker, and Gregor Nicholas. There was a bunch of us who all came through the industry, and they became directors. And I did some short films with Gregor, and then Alison put this short film together with you know, Arts Council funding called Kitchen Sink. It's a 10-minute black and white creepy horror story about a 
creature who comes out of a literally out of the waste pipe of a sink in a woman's kitchen. And we shot it in you know black and white film, zero budget, but it came out really well. And it was produced by a woman called Bridget Eichen, who was also a friend of Allison's. Bridget was the partner of John Maynard and John and Bridget. Their next project was An Angel at My Table. Ah, okay. And because Jane's first choice of camera person was not available, they suggested me. And Jane knew Alison. She knew the film, the Kitchen Sick film. In fact, it had run as a short subject in Australia with her first feature, Sweetie, like a part of a double bill. So she knew the work and she met with me then and we went on to make three films together three films and if we unpack as the americans would say angel my table for a moment what kind of production how many shooting days was it more exterior interior unfortunately i'm not no, I it's okay. I can... this movie and actually i interned at new line back in the day so i'm gonna enjoy watching this one but i have watched a couple of your other pictures in anticipation of this so can you run us through the production and uh, how many days you had exteriors interiors how much on soundstage and what was that like to work with well, jane bear in mind this is 1988 or something maybe ish yeah. maybe 89 so in terms of the sort of details of how many days i'm not entirely sure but it was quite a decent schedule by local standards we were we made it as a three-part miniseries. And so I'm guessing, it, you know, maybe we had 60 days, something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a punishing schedule. A very small crew. We didn't have a sound stage as such, but we did have some warehouses where we built, Grant Major built the, the, the interior of the houses. We built a Spanish street before wow. we been to Spain or like a interior that opened onto a street bunch of stuff mostly was shot on location around Auckland and because it's quite a rural a lot of it's fairly rural we had an abandoned mental hospital for the second episode which is when she spends quite a bit of time in a mental hospital so that's the core of the whole second story and then the third episode which all gets c compressed into one film when you see it as a film but it was conceived episodically as three episodes. The third act, if you like, is when she goes off to the world and travels, she started to become a writer and she spends quite a lot of time in Spain and that we did England and Spain, but we did most of that in location in and around Auckland, sets in this warehouse, the Spanish interiors. And then we actually went to Spain for about five days shooting. We did two days in London, two days in Paris, and I think five in in Spain with literally a four-person crew, like a documentary crew. And we'll and come back to your second collaboration with Jane in a second, but typically as a director, even back then, did she do a lot of takes? Did she like to move fast through the schedule, through the script? What are your recollections from that uh, first? My recollection was that she, that the first thing was that she did a lot of rehearsals with her cast, at which I was invited to, which was incredibly helpful. And I would do some shot listing and storyboarding while watching the rehearsals. Jane also storyboards extensively. She's got, she went to fight, she was a fine arts grad and she draws beautifully and uh, i've lost the thread of the question now no uh, oh yeah the directing style definitely a lot of rehearsal and that was incredibly helpful and being invited into that was incredibly helpful for me sorry about the chime. no worries can't be not online and have shine not have chimes in terms of takes i mean we were we'd all come from a low budget filmmaking background so 
I would say if we did three to five takes, that would have been a lot. And most, I would think three on average. Okay, so, great. Um, so you got some nuances in the performance and you had 60 days, of course it was- I, When I say 60 days, I actually have no idea. <laughs> My memory is it must've been about that. If we did three right. one hour episodes, they must have been say 20 days each, but right. it might be less. Maybe 60 days, including the trip to Europe. Five days. Yeah. I know it made my, as a young, as a relatively inexperienced DP, it made my head hurt because we would quite often do one location in the morning or one set and then another set, another location. And having to create all these lighting setups in fairly rapid succession without a lot of, we didn't really have the ability to pre-light and prep a lot of the lighting. It literally made my head hurt quite a lot some days, but it was great. Have you kept the same sort of crews like Dolly Grip, Scaffers in the decades since, or do you tend to switch around depending on the country you're in? It definitely depends on the country I'm in. I have great crew. I've worked all over the world and I tend to work with local people. I definitely, there are people in New Zealand, whenever I've worked there in recent years, who who do who I can trace back to, to Angel at My Table, the, Gaffer, Sean O'Neill, who I work with a lot in New Zealand and in Asia, was the best boy on that film, I think, with Danny Williams, the gaffer. And yeah, there's um, Peter McCaffrey, I think, was the focus puller, yeah, who has then gone on to be a very good Steadicam operator and was my A-camera operator on The Great Wall in China. So there's threads through there, but I tend to work, if I'm in, if I'm in LA, I'm working with an LA crew. If I'm in New York, of course, I live in New York. I have a great bunch of uh, New York grips and gaffers and focus pullers and operators that I love to work with. But it, it often, unlike some DPs, I'm not sort of like a one trick pony. It's not just one crew. And I like that. I like having a, like a repertoire of crew that I can call on because otherwise the one day you want somebody, then they're not available. You're completely, I mean, there are, there definitely are. I know that I know some DPs who like always work with the same gaff or the same key group. And I guess are busy enough to be able to keep them busy enough as well. But I tend to jump around a bit. And so it's been about 30 years since the piano 1993. We talked about Angel at My Table, but going to that picture, any technical challenges, a lot shot obviously on location, in fact, probably most, was there any, did the movie finish on time? Did there were any challenges to go back and do reshoots? Tell us a bit about the piano. We certainly never went back and reshot anything that I can remember. I don't believe we did any additional photography on the piano. We might've, if we did any reshooting, it was within the schedule, within the shooting schedule. And I don't remember doing any. There were definitely some technical challenges. If you remember the film there, there's, scenes on a canoe in a essentially a dugout canoe maori canoe which certainly the one we had not the most stable of craft certainly not once you put a even a fake piano on top of it so there, there were definitely challenges in making that work we did a lot of it tethered to a like a landing barge type ferry that we could take out to sea we did quite a lot of the dialogue scene in, in the canoe was shot on the beach like we pulled it up on the beach and had the ocean horizon in the background uh, just for sheer convenience, because shooting on the canoe on the ocean was proving uh, technically challenging. So we really, in scenes where there was no real action involving people being in and out of the canoe, and of course that happened, we tried to keep it as simple as possible. Of course, that scene sequence leads into Holly Hunter's character, Ada, going over the side 
being dragged down into the watery depths by her piano, which was quite an undertaking. We shot that in a very sheltered bay in North Auckland, North Northland, which is area north of Auckland. And our marine coordinators, they had a 60-foot pile-driving barge with two cranes on it. We had an underwater specialist photographer, Robbie Hunter, I think Rob Hunter, from Australia. Underwater communications, we had a lighting rig that we hung out on one of the out cranes to, because it gets dark underwater very quickly using the first, the very first HMI par lights that we've been able to get our hands on. They would, had just been released and we had a rack of those getting down into the water. And when you look up, when we're looking up, that's actually what it looks like, the sun, but actually sparkling through the water is actually our lighting rig. So definitely some challenges. Jane, Angel at My Table is a very static film, but the camera moves. Sometimes it moves in or out a little bit, but there's not a lot of camera moves. There's only one crane shot in it that I can remember. I think it's the very end of the third episode. And Jane was keen to to bring more camera movement into her film language on piano. That was something. And working with our operator, Alan Bollinger, to develop narrative camera moves was a big thing on that show. Again, a lot of rehearsal with her key cast and with some of the supporting cast, the Maori tribes people who come in almost as a Greek chorus at times. She did a lot of work with them. And we're most, a lot of location work at the beginning. And we went out into the forest for the first two weeks, I think. And the muddy clearing that designer Andrew McAlpine had around Sam Neill's homestead. We shot all of that up first. Didn't have too many weather problems, luckily. It was late summer, which is a great time to shoot in New Zealand. That'd um, be 92, because I guess usually you shoot a year before. So it's 90, summer of 92 or? It would have been 91. No, probably 92. I, and again, I'm really, yeah, not too clear about that. Been 30 um, years, you're doing really well, Stuart, because that's three I decades, think, I think. Yeah, it might have it might. It was, it took a while for the film to come out. It may have been in... Yeah, it must have been ninety-two. I'm trying because my one of my one of my New Zealand-born kids, two of them had small parts in the show within a show, and Isabel was only three years old, I think. Which, anyway, yeah, early. Um, today, a lot of these shots would be a tank, or and we think of Perfect Storm, or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, but I guess. Shooting in a real environment, I guess the advantage there is that you it really feels better in camera. Is that right? Are you well, one for taking? Yeah, we, we didn't have. Sorry, I didn't mean to go. But we did, we just didn't have oh, a sorry. tank that was big enough. Even yeah, you know, we looked at diving pools and we needed to feel that sort of. And I guess we weren't thinking visual effects very strongly in those days either. Trying to get it all in camera. When you look down into the water, we wanted it to just disappear into the murky depths, and then. We also needed to shoot on the ocean floor. The very final scene, I think, in the movie, which is her imagining herself drowned, tethered to the piano. And you see this in the movie, in amongst kelp. You know, and Robbie, the underwater photographer, was at about 60 feet on the ocean wow. floor. Uh, and that was one of the re other reasons we chose this place, because it also had the sort of undersea landscape that we needed for that. I think it benefited enormously from, from being real as much as possible it's, i still and, like uh, to keep thinking and going forward now to so we're at 93 tell us about there's a lot of movies coming up early 2000s but tell us a bit about late 90s what was your next what was your next collaboration the late 90s? 
Well, yeah, well, yeah, mid well, to late nineties. We go there. Basically, the piano, the success of the piano was a ticket out of New Zealand for me, and quite a few of us really. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, we had a. I could come to America or England, as it happened, I came to the US, with a film that people had actually seen and admired. So it really made the transition from New Zealand to the rest of the world possible, actually, not just easy, but possible. So, yeah, that was amazing. And we, the next film I did with Jane was a Portrait of a Lady, which we shot in the UK and Italy. So that kind of got me into this end of the world anyway. And I, then I stayed from then on. I'd done a couple of films in the US prior to that, just as visiting firemen on an O1 visa. The Perez family and John Sales Lone Star, which was a great film to have been part of. But yeah, so I was able to come to the States. So then if you move into the mid-90s, when I moved to New York, and I chose New York over LA for... I'm a city kid. I was born in London, even though I grew up in New Zealand. I still feel very much a city kid. And I shot the actually came here originally to shoot a film which i got fired from through not just knowing how it worked not really understanding that i was supposed to be as it was quite seriously i thought i only worked for the director yeah. didn't occur to me that i actually had responsibility to the studio and the producers and, and as a result when we fell behind because well for all kinds of reasons my personally laid the blame on the director but that's not go there yeah. it was me and the first assistant director who got fired and replaced but by then I was already in New York and I had somewhere to live and I met my now wife and then the next job that came up for me was the pilot episode for Sex in the City okay okay so right. this is uh, early 2000s am I right the top of my head no this is no this is 1997 Okay. maybe yeah uh, i know that show ran forever yeah um, that's, and that's it's still it's, apparently it's still you, the, if you turn on a tv somewhere in the world it's still running yeah <laughs> apparently yeah. and i know they've done spin-offs but no we just did the pilot and we did it we shot with susan seidelman and it was like oh down and it was the idea was it was because as you may know the show was based on a column in the village voice i think, I think okay. one, one of those weekly cool. papers and candace the woman who wrote it based the character of Carrie on herself, and it was a, it was a weekly commentary on really what it's like to be a single woman in New York City in the nineties, and and then Darren Star picked it up and took and turned it into a TV show. But we because it had this sort of urban grittiness to it in its yeah. way you read it. We shot sixteen millimeter. We were very influenced by the sort of the Ken Loach sort of approach the social documentary <laughs> it totally we could not have been more wrong but the girls were obviously there was an element of the girls being glamorous in mm -hmm. even in, in the way we were doing that and that's what they picked up on and when they went on forward with the series it became very much all that but uh, yeah it was we couldn't have been more <laughs> mistaken about the concept and yet i think we turned in a really good pilot that that definitely set the it set the it didn't set the visual tone for the show but it set the stylistic or the attitude of the show i think pretty well and this late 90s is it all on location shooting any soundstage work or yeah i think we shot almost all of it on location in new york we might have had a day or two on a set 
but I remember shooting the scene, the opening scene where the crane comes at, in or out of Carrie's apartment, pulls back through the window and reveals the city. Yeah, on Madison Avenue, that was uptown by the uh, location. Yeah, and yeah, most of it was. So that takes us to because we have so many pictures, Joe. We want to ask you about that. Takes us to around two thousand, and then we have how do you start up with? Run us through Analyze This and Bridget Jones' Diary. How does that come about? Well, Analyze This was pretty much straight after The Sex in the City. That was at, oh, the following year. We shot it. And that was a great, that was so much fun to do. Harold Ramis was terrific guy to work with. He, he left a lot of the visual and shot planning to me because he's mm-hmm. it's just not his thing. He's interested. He was interested in the performances and the dialogue. So I and we had a lot of fun. We had to do and things like doing the Billy Crystal's dream sequence where he's in The Godfather, which where we did a frame-for-frame reconstruction of a scene from The, the Godfather. It was, like, super fun to do. And like playing the whole gangster oeuvre against the comedy of it. And this was... And, of course, at the same time, across town, they were shooting the pilot episode of The Sopranos. We were oh, kind of going, I wonder how their gangster movie... I wonder how their gangster movie, comedy movie's going. You know, quite different shows in many ways. But And that... The, I think the next film I did after that was Runaway Bride, which sort of plonked me into the world of romantic comedies pretty solidly with Gary Marshall. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that led to Bridget Jones' Diary, which was shot in the UK, I would say, yeah, probably was the year 2000. It would have been 99, but I think it was 2000. Oh, you're, you're right. I've got the information here. Your memory is It was released, but you don't necessarily know when it was shot, do you? Shot, that's it. And over this period, because we have a lot of listeners are on the technical side or might be coming up through film sure. schools, are you using... Panavision cameras at this period. I was, you know, the, my most of my early work was on Arriflex because in New Zealand that was what we had. Piano was shot with a BL three, I think BL four. And uh, but when I came to the states, I really liked the Lone Star. I think was the first film I shot with Panaflex. Hmm. It was also my first anamorphic film, and I really liked the format for that. Although actually we shot at Super Thirty Five, we didn't. I was slow to adopt anamorphic lenses in spite of the urging of many of my colleagues like Vilmos Sigmund who said you're Stuart you must shoot anamorphic because it's the real thing god bless him and but the like the system and the platinum cameras had just come out along with the XL super lightweight yeah joy to work with and really good video support and, and in this period, are you, is it around the time of DI's digital intermediates? Can we talk about working with the lab a bit? Is well, that coming? Yeah, I, I, you're right, because I, I grew up in New Zealand. I grew up in a lab culture where we didn't time the dailies. That means that the lab printed everything that came in at the same set of lights, what they believed was the standard Kodak exposure for print film. So if you, and it was brilliant, And I think it shows in the camera people from our end of the world, because every time you made a minor mistake or even a big mistake, you saw it in dailies. If you made it, if the color was a bit off, if the uncorrected fluoros were too green or the you're underexposed a little bit, you saw it in your dailies. Whereas when I first came to the States, I was very confused by the fact that there was a very smart guy at the lab who was timing my dailies every day and trying to make them look as good as possible as we used to say, print for further employment. But and but I shooting learning to shoot in that that rather hard environment of the one light print and then discovering the glories of time dailies where 
everything you shot looked really good, or at least as good as it could, thanks to people like Joey V at Technicolor here in New York. Great color timer. And then, and then we would work with lab, again, brilliant lab technicians to create the final print. What happened around about the turn of the century, and I think my first outing with a DI print was Aeon Flux, which okay. we shot in we shot in in Berlin, in and around Berlin, and at the Potsdam Studios. But the DI was done at Deluxe in, in, in LA. And we did a lot of testing because it was new for all of us. And the producers were saying things like, oh, this DI, it's great. Does that mean we don't have to worry about whether the sun goes out or in? You're not, you're not going to be one of those people who's going to say, oh, the sun went behind a cloud, have to go again. So we actually shot tests to see if we could make sunny material look cloudy and cloudy material look sunny. And the answer is you can't. You can't really. It was it was transformative, the ability to go inside the frame and isolate using power windows to isolate a face and yeah. then lift or raise the exposure, change the color, the contrast, everything in that kind of detailed way. And of colorists, most of whom I think had originally come up to the commercial world because we would always do digital coloring on the tv commercials we shot um and as early probably even as early as the late 80s we were able to manipulate i don't remember when power windows came out but we were able to start working within the frame quite early but we couldn't do that in feature films until the di process was introduced and we have some um, beginners on the podcast listening from film schools can you run us through if I'm remembering correctly, you have shot with Vision 2 a lot for Kodak stocks. Tungsten versus daylight. Are you saving your tungsten stocks for day interiors and daylight more for exteriors? Or what's, what's yeah, the balance? I mean, yeah, to this day, I just completed a, a project for Amazon Studios and Jonah Nolan called Fallout, which is a streaming, science fiction streaming thing. And Jonah, Jonathan, like his brother Chris, is a film fanatic, Will not would rather fight than quit whatever the term is, switch, rather fight than switch, I think is the old Overwatch. And anyway, so we shot this TV series on, on, on photochemical film. And so, to, yeah, and the film stocks really improved during the 90s, but they've plateaued. They're all, they're really good and they don't really require a lot more work. I guess if you could get more sensitivity out of it, that would be nice. If you get the, if you get the sensitivity of a digital camera, which happily shoots a 1200 or 2500 ASA sometimes that would be nice but at 500 ASA you can get pretty really good results even shooting natural light in the city and so I still adopt the same things that I really took on in my sort of earliest days if I'm shooting daylight exterior I like to shoot 50 ASA daylight stock why not it's fine grained it's got nice contrast great color the old 50D used to look like Kodachrome the new ones are better balance, but I love the old one, the 45 when it was around. And there's a 250 ASA daylight film, which is great when it's a little early in the morning or a little late in the evening and you're starting to have a little less light. Might even use that for some well-lit day interiors in some cases. But mostly once to go into interiors or to studio, it's I, the workhorse for me has been the 5217, the 500T. There, there are, there's, I'm sure they still make a 100 ASA film. The last time I saw it was called 5248, but I haven't used it in years and years. I tend to jump the two daylight stocks and then the high speed tungsten are my main, main film stocks. And I haven't really. 
worked outside of sorry and i haven't really experimented outside of the kodak range there was i a few commercials using agfa just for a slightly different look back in the day but i'm not sure anyone makes it except kodak anymore yeah. do contrast of time 10 minutes ago on the zoom and you've used the aracam a lot the lt in recent years i think no reservations you moved away from panavision and then painted veil but what is it about the the aracams that you like you've used them a lot of your on your shoots a lot of your shoots and i think it's fair to say that there was i did go with the better tool that that panavision for all kinds of complex reasons that might have more to do with ownership than anything else were a bit starved for development in the late 90s or 2000s they'd made this beautiful camera system the platinum and the xl but they weren't really able to develop beyond that and the aricam which saw a synthesis of the old movie cam and Arif, i think movie cam was originally made by people who left ari and went to make the movie cam and then they came back into the ari fold and so that the aricam is essentially a updated movie cam and it's just great state-of-the-art film camera and uh, yeah so that's been my sort of go-to for a while i did have a, a fling back with panavision in the early 2000s on the, a film in china called the painted veil with john curran which we shot using we got our cameras out of salon films in hong kong which who were a panavision agent in the day panavision anamorphic lenses old c's and e lenses which were beautiful textured glass lovely color lovely contrast all a little bit different which made for a really great look on that movie which is it's one of my favorite it's possibly my favorite film in terms of look of the films that i've done but that's um, saying a lot because i recall i've listened to a lot of roger deacon's podcast and he actually said 1984 with mike radford so if you're listing painted veil amongst your favorites you've done and what I love about Euston and also Roger and Newton Thomas Siegel and a few others, Jairus Conjure, you have such a variety of genres. I don't know if we're going to have time on the podcast today to talk about that. But if we go towards some of your more recent, like Men is Black, Ben is Back and The Great Wall, you also be using the Ari Alexa 65 and Alexa, Ari Alexa Mini in more recent years. What is it about these cameras that you like? Are they versatile for various different kinds of shoots? The 65 is a beautiful camera. It's For my money, it's the only digital camera that really you can really say is as good as a film camera in terms of image capture and in the way that it renders faces and captures color. It doesn't have any of the things that we don't like about any of the things we don't like about digital, which is those sharp edges and those burning highlights. The 65 is a great camera. It's largely because it's got, essentially it's three Alexa chips side by side to create a, something about that big as a capture sensor. And it has worked really well. I love it. It's, I haven't worked that much with the new LF camera. No, it's not called LF. Are they, there is an LF. I've shot a lot with the LF, but there's a, a new medium format ARRI camera that I haven't really had a chance to play with because this last year I've been shooting film again. But the 65 it was a was a game changer. Actually, the whole Alexa family. We shot, did a TV pilot for Michael Mann called, for a show called Luck, which we shot on film. Because we tend, and he's an, he was an early adopter of digital technology, but looking at these sort of bright racetrack environments, harsh sunlight, we tested the, the what was then sort of state of the art Sony F35 and against film cameras and took them all into Stefan Sonnefeld's DI suite and looked at it. And at the end of the day, the film 
still look better. A year later, we had the Alexa, the original Alexa, and that, while still not, in my opinion, quite being a film camera, is very film adjacent, if you like. And and we once we started shooting episodes for the series, we were shooting on the Alexa, and then we went on to do Black Hat for Michael again, again originating capture on the Alexa. XL, I believe, or XT, I think it was the one that came out with the XT. And I'm glad you mentioned Black Hat because I didn't want to end the conversation without discussing a bit of Black Hat because I know Michael is such a forerunner of digital, whether it be on Collateral with Dion Beep or yourself on Black Hat. So you had several cameras on Black Hat. Um, Which sequence is called for the Red Scarlet? Which ones? Could you give us some info on how you shot that? Yeah. I mean, we definitely, we knew that we wanted, there, there was an Alexa M, I think it was called, which was like the, just the camera body and then there was like a fiber optic tether to the control unit it didn't really help you out very much in terms of camera mobility so we started out using canon 5ds for action cameras there's a scene a fight in a korean restaurant and essentially there's myself maybe i think myself two camera operators and myself with 5ds shooting that handheld in the right in the mid trying to get inside the action but we found that the as good as the 5D is, it doesn't look, it doesn't stack up next to the quality of the, the Alexa. So we then, we actually borrowed, I think it was from Stefan Sonnenfeld, lent us his personal Sony, no, Sony, the red Scarlet. Is it, was it the yeah. Scarlet? The, yeah. the, the, According the to IMDb. Prosum- <laughs> yeah, but it was a relatively low, low end red. But that we then knew, we we had that, and we might even had two of them eventually that we could use as more throw around cameras, jam into tight spaces. I think we even had one in a helmet that Chris Hemsworth was wearing in his survival suit. We actually had one sort of jammed into the helmet on a bracket. So yeah, but there's a lot of different cameras on that show. We also had the Viper high speed cameras for a, an explosion sequence we there's some gopro in there somewhere for surveillance oh, wow. we use them for surveillance camera footage things like that and would it be uh, right to we, say that it was a 2k shooting dailies and you actually blew it up to a 4k for the release or tell us a bit about the di for I that i don't think we did i think it was it's 2.7k the the alexa native xt and i doubt that what was this 2013 2014, somewhere around there. I'm not sure anyone, I'm not sure anyone, that, that 4K TVs existed, but nobody had them. We saw one at, at Stefan's place in, in Santa Monica. They had one in the lobby that would, people would go, oh, look at this, 4K TV. But there was no content for it. Nobody was making content for it at that point. So Just I think that we... That, um, Stefan is related to Barry Sonnenfeld, is that right? Or I don't believe so. Okay, so there's no... no I, believe, I, I Actually, I don't think so. Okay. Had never occurred to me, but no, I don't believe so. He's a he, Stefan is a, a, an amazing colorist. Ah, okay, uh, sorry, yeah. Okay, and he I'm struggling with the name of the company now, but he's amazing. Stefan's an amazing colorist, and he's done I think all of Michael's films in recent years. He can't, he timed the film Secret Life of Walter Mitty that I did. He yeah yeah I've done a lot of work with him. He's a terrific colorist. That's a good segue for us into working with Ben Stiller, 2013 Fox movie. What were your recollections of this, of working on Secret Life? How many days shooting? Tell us a bit about the movie. Again, I have no no idea how many days we spent shooting on it. I know that I started on it in 
February. We shot a couple of months in New York, and then we went down for a while, maybe, and moved to Iceland, did a whole reboot in Iceland for the location work. The movie, the great thing about, from my point of view, is that although it might not appear to be on the surface, it's a film about photography. And Ben's a collector of photographs. He has a great collection of particularly photojournalist photos. He's a photo buff. And one of the main main characters is a photo archivist. And he goes off in search of, and photos are clues and the different characters who are photographers. And it was filmed in great locations in New York, great studio sets in New York, and amazing locations in Iceland, where we were able to play Iceland as Iceland as Greenland, Iceland as the North Sea, and Iceland as Afghanistan. Wow. Quite. And totally doesn't all totally feels like different places when you see the movie. I think quite quite a remarkable place. And shooting in Iceland was a, is a joy. It's an amazing country. The people are great. The local crews are great. Very adaptable. So, yeah, Stuart, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today on Glowstream Podcast. Are there any Filmmakers, you've had quite a varied career, lots of countries, lots of filmmakers. Any filmmakers you would still like to collaborate with or repeat collaborations, perhaps another movie with Michael, another movie with Jane? What's coming up for Stuart Driver? I wouldn't, I don't want to play favorites. I've enjoyed the relationships I've had with most of the directors. I wouldn't say unreservedly all, but I've generally had really great working relationships with directors. I've had the privilege of working with a lot of different from the say the Janes, the Martin Scorsese's, Michael Mant, yeah, some of the world famous directors, but also yeah, I've just been blessed with some really good collaborations over the years. Yeah, I, keep it coming. <laughs> you read a lot of scripts, and what is it that excites you to take on the next role? Is it certain genres you still want to do, or what comes into your yeah, consideration? I, there are definitely genres that I have preferences for. I definitely overdosed a little bit on romantic comedies in mid-career so I tend to avoid them now but it's not to say I really enjoyed shooting Catherine Zeta-Jones on No Reservations for example I had a ball on that it was a good good experience no I definitely somewhat genre driven I think it store definitely story driven more than if I read a script and the story grabs me that's a big thing and then the meeting with the director is the Crucial thing. There are people that you just click with. And if that happens, then I definitely want to do the movie, even if the genre might not be entirely to my taste. If I can feel the collaboration building there, then that's uh, that's something I'm, uh, I'm really drawn to. It is so much a collaborative medium, I think. In terms of technology, we talked about Ari a bit and Panavision. What would you like to see from the camera companies in terms of pushing the technology, in terms of maybe F-stops or T-stops? What would you like to see coming next in terms of cameras? Oh, I don't know, hit almost a level of perfection. With the Arri cams for film and the Alexa series for right up to the 65 and the LFs and the M's in between, yeah, it's hard, it's, it's hard to know what else you could ask for, to be honest. The camera, they see in the dark. They see better than we do. Th- that can actually be challenging sometimes. It's quite hard to light at the levels that sometimes we're working to because you're literally working with 12-volt light bulbs and flashlight to get down to the in shooting firelight, which was always a challenge in film. Just it never quite... You need to have a lot of fire to get a, a firelit scene. But... 
Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty content with the technology as it exists at the moment. I got to be honest. I'm sure people there there are camera designers out there who are constantly working on it, and I'm sure they'll come up with things that surprise us. But at the moment, we have such uh, great tools to work with. It's hard to even the way that people are rebuilding and rehousing old lenses mm. to make them more user friendly, which helps the take the curse off some of the sharpness of the digital image that you get. There's some really interesting work being done with lenses out there and new lenses as well. The, the Black Hawk, is it? The Black? Um, my friends there will won't forgive me for not getting their name right. But there's people are still producing new. Scorpio have a whole new range of anamorphic lenses, which are interesting because they don't act like anamorphic lenses. There's yeah, it, the technology still keeps going, but we all but we definitely if they never invented another camera, we'd be fine for a while. Okay, <laughs> it's pretty good. And we didn't get to touch too much on lighting, but would you say it's harder to light for digital than it was for thirty-five millimeter? Or what are your thoughts on that? It's actually easier to light for digital because you see the result instantly with photochemical. One of the things that that made our profession impenetrable for people or in some ways was that in the days of film, the only person who really knew what was going to come out on the film was the cinematographer. You were seeing a, a digital symbol on the set, but it quite often wasn't. Color would be different. Brightness would be different. And now, of course, it's much more accessible. I think in many ways, it's a good thing that digital cameras have made it. You don't have to be such a techie nerd to do it. If you just have the creative chops and you, you can create on digital without having to have that sort of technical know-how that went into film. And it's not that complicated. It's essentially reading a light meter. But, you know, I do think there's one of the things I do whenever I, if ever I teach cinematography and is I try and get people to not use the monitor to light, to, to try, I would say, think, shoot digital, but think film. And I think that, of course, you always end up looking at the monitor because why wouldn't you? But it, 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 there is something about using your brain as the camera control unit, the image processor, rather than letting the technology do all of it. Well, sure. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Wish you a great year ahead. And thank you for thank being you on.